Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast, a show about artistry and industry in music. My name is Adam Eckler, and it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career. Today, I'm talking with Rex Richardson. Rex is an international trumpet soloist, both in the jazz styles and the classical styles. He's like premiering major orchestral works overseas, doing all kinds of massive festivals as a jazz musician, and toured with Joe Henderson for the last year of Joe Henderson's life, even played Joe Henderson's final concert. We get to hear a little bit about what that experience was like playing with Joe, being sandwiched between, the way Rex says it, he says he was sandwiched between Einstein and Hercules, right? So he was just in the midst of amazing talent and musicianship and got to experience that as a relatively young musician. He's got a really interesting story too because just like, you know, I talked to Caroline Davis uh, who didn't do an undergraduate degree in music. Rex was the same way. He kind of went to do that and then dropped out and got a, got a degree, I think, in anthropology. Really an interesting story, an interesting trajectory for his career and has really made a huge career in the guest artist world, being a guest artist for festivals, being a guest soloist for orchestras. And if you're somebody who's an instrumentalist, who considers yourself to be a high-level performer and also a dynamic educator, this is totally a scene that you could get into too. It's a scene that I live in pretty frequently between the months of January and May, generally. And there's a whole bunch of money in that scene. So it, it became a pretty significant part of my income pie as I was coming up as a musician in Minneapolis. And I'm still working in that scene frequently. I'm actually gonna be leaving tomorrow. When this episode comes out, I'll be driving down to Iowa to judge the Iowa Jazz Championships which isn't really the same type of thing. It's like, this is like an adjudicator kind of thing where I'm like listening to a whole bunch of jazz bands and then ranking them uh, from one to whatever, 25, which is weird. That's a weird way. It's kind of like solo ensemble in that way, I guess. Anyways, I'm driving down to Iowa. I'm doing the Iowa State Jazz Championships coming up. And then I'll be flying out to South Dakota to do a guest artist thing down there uh, with Ryan Staley's band. He's director there at a high school in Mitchell. And then shortly after that, I'll be heading down to Arizona to do like a klezmer thing with some musicians that I worked with in Minneapolis back in the day. And then that same week, I'm flying down to Houston. I'm going to spend some time with my sister, which is awesome because uh, her family lives down there. But I am working with the jazz band at Memorial Lutheran High School where my nephew goes to school and plays trumpet. So I'll be kind of like doing the guest artist thing at their at their high school during that weekend. So this is kind of like the high time for those kinds of events. And then coming up, I've got a bunch of shows. Uh, I'm going to be in Madison, May 19th performing with Supercell, my trio with Brian Courage and Andrew Green. That is happening at Blue Stem Arts. We're going to be in the recording studio. So we're actually going to do like another live album in the recording studio with an audience. Uh, so that's rad. So if you're in the Madison area, mark that on calendars. That's May 19th. And June 2nd, I'll be at Crooners with my wife's band, the Janet Iberg Five in Minneapolis, which includes like Kaviesh Kaviraj on keys, one of my former students, and Abinet on drums, and, and Jeff Bailey on bass. Ridiculous band. Anyways, I want to bring you this awesome conversation with Rex Richardson. Rex has become a friend over the years, a mentor to me, really a huge inspiration as an artist, as a musician, as a trumpet player, and he just has a great story. And so without further ado, this is my conversation with Rex. Uh, so I have a theory that being a musician is about relationships and longevity. Uh, I remember you telling a story about like Lester Bowie getting your number and then like years going by and you getting the call to play with Joe Henderson. Could you tell that story? Yeah, I had met Lester. It was actually it was a fairly short time frame that it happened. 
Um, it was all within kind of months, but yeah. it was still all about luck, essentially. So what happened was I was on tour with the Chicago Jazz Ensemble in Italy. We played this festival. Well, we played a few festivals uh, on that tour, but they were, and some of them, they were doing kind of an art ensemble of Chicago, uh, the tribute, and so Lester was playing for that. You know? Okay, yeah. And of course, Lester had been in New York for some time, and he was still a part of that movement, you know. And and um, so I was, I played some stuff as a soloist with the band, and I got to meet him. And I said, yeah, I'm moving to New York. And he's like, well, would you be interested in playing with the Brass Fantasy group? I was like, well, heck yes, you know. Yeah. And I, uh, so I gave him my number, and I never got a call from him about that. But a few months later, um, I got a voicemail from him. And the funny thing was back then, musicians who were trying to kind of become part of the New York scene, even before I moved to New York, I set up a voicemail with a, with a 212 number yeah because i wanted the people to think i was in new york because i would come for any gig sure but it, and you know how it goes it's like if they think you're out of town like oh it's too much trouble there's no bread and um so that was part of my uh <laughs> my my way of trying to get on onto the scene initially interesting and yeah so he left a voicemail there and he's like um yeah you're gonna get a call from joe henderson's manager about about touring you know and i i think it's the only time i got nervous when I got called about getting called yeah. for a gig, you know, and, uh, and and thrilled too, of course, it was you know one of my greatest heroes ever, and uh, just kind of shocked. And, and the way it played out is that someone who's, who's become a, a, a good friend and a very very highly respected colleague since then um, had been asked to play and had asked for more money, ah. and, and had been kind of told where to go, I guess, by Joe's manager. <laughs> And then Joe reached out to Lester, like, you know anyone, you know, anyone who's maybe new on the scene or whatever, and at the time it was great, because Lester's like, I heard this cat in Italy, he's moving to New York, and uh, so I had a couple CDs out at the time, mm -hmm. I sent them to Joe's manager, and he said, uh, when he called me, he's like, Joe said that I reminded him of Woody Shaw and Freddie Hubbard, which okay. is funny because, you know, those are my guys. And yeah, yeah. I've always sounded, I think, kind of like a lame version of <laughs> Woody and Freddie, maybe with a, you know, a little of, of some other stuff thrown in there, of course. But it was like, um, in, in a way, I think it made sense because um, my influencers were, you know, the, the guys he, he'd been playing with. And yeah. He was also, the reason why he wanted a trumpet player at the time was he was trying to pull out a lot of those old sextet pieces from the 60s okay like shade of jade and yeah and the kicker and because at the time he was touring uh the gershwin album hmm. that verb um had apparently kind of made him do as part of his contract and he interesting i thought the album was amazing and beautiful tunes but he, he didn't really like playing that stuff apparently this is all from i think conrad told me all this yeah because conrad herbert was on the band yeah and um so I jumped in on those tunes as well. I just we sort of did ad hoc ad hoc arrangements. But the main reason why I, I was there, or any trumpet player was there, was to to pull out those old amazing tunes. So it was a real thrill to get to play that stuff with Joe. You know? Cool. And so, how long did that stretch last? It was only about nine months or so because it was it would have been late December of '97, the same year that I uh, met Lester, and then. 
I did a trial, I did like a week at the Iridium and then a week at the Jazz Bakery in, in Hollywood. So it was like, you know, other sides of the continent right off the bat. And it was kind of a trial period. Yep. And, um, I remember feeling very stressed at first because like, okay, I got like Einstein on the tenor and I got Hercules on the trombone. Yeah. Where, do I, <laughs> where, where do I fit in this, you know? And, but I, I felt like I kind of found a, a niche there and and uh, Joe invited me to keep touring, so the next thing was a thing in Japan. But um, he was already in bad shape at that point. And by August, he was just too sick to tour. So I played my, you know, his last concert. Wow! So it was at the Stern Grove Festival in uh, San Francisco, like late August, and um, yeah, that was it. So it didn't last very long, sadly, because of, unfortunately, uh, uh, because of Joe's health. Yeah. What did you learn? Like you talked about being between Einstein and Hercules. What did you learn as a musician in, in that? A few things. One is to, to not worry so much about that. You know, you, hmm. you've got to trust when it's the kind of thing where I think a lot of people can go through a little bit of this sort of imposter syndrome, you know, and, yep. but you got to trust when, when someone called you to play, you've got to trust that they know what you can do and that's what they want in this case <clears throat> it was a little scary because joe didn't really know me he knew me from a couple of recordings and right here i was trying to fit into, into this new setting but i was like well i've got the way i play the language i have and and um <clears throat> let me just do my best to, to sound good but I'll, I'll tell you one thing i got some <clears throat> really invaluable input from conrad hmm. and you know, all the folks of the band, there's, there's a group of amazing musicians. Stefan Harris is playing vibes, and wow. George Morales is playing bass. And yeah. We went through a handful of different drummers, but uh, at the end, it was really just a couple of weeks before Joe Stoppa, Eric Harlan started playing, which felt like Eric's going to be the guy. Wow. And, and Conrad, but I, I probably got closest with Conrad, and he really was kind of mentoring me. Because hmm. I remember asking him one time, I was like, man, just give me some feedback. And he says, he says, "Look, you know, you know, you 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 play well, um, but what you got to remember is that your job here is to make Joe look good." Hmm. And and I was like, "Yeah." And I started thinking about maybe there are times I was playing, maybe at, at an energy level that that didn't really fit what was happening around me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, there's no way I was going to play better than Joe or anyone else in that band, but it's also, there's a way to play that fits kind of the, the narrative of the songs. You know? Right, like right. When you have a series of solos, ideally, they unfold in a way that the, the tune, the performance, is something worth listening to, mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, that person's done, I'm just going to do my thing and don't care what happens before or after, you know, so... So putting myself more in that framework of thinking about what was happening around me. And so I really took that to heart with, with Conrad and I started paying more attention to what was happening with the tunes, what had happened with the solo before me, um, who might still be playing, what might they do, you know. So I got a little more into that frame of mind, thinking a little more like a composer in terms of how the structure of each tune was going to unfold. Right, right. Set. And I think that helped me... Uh, Better, you know. That's cool, man. I just said to my students yesterday, you know, serve the song, serve the moment you're in. It's like, think about the moment you're in and serve that moment with whatever you play. It's like, it's cool that you can do all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I've got a bass player that, like, 
he's move, he's moving around, he's doing all this stuff, and it's like time suffering a little bit. And I'm like, you know, this is the solo section where Rex is going to be blowing, you know, because you're here to play with my students. But I'm like, this Rex is going to be blowing here, so like you need to be thinking about serving the the moment, like serve the song with everything you play. And I, like I heard JT, uh, I don't know, I don't think I actually spoke with JT Bates about this, but like I heard it through somebody else. But it's like. JT's this amazing, you know, you know JT from yeah. Minneapolis. He's an amazing jazz drummer, but like also plays with Boney Vare and played on Taylor, Taylor Swift's last record. And so he's becoming known as this guy who's just like great at playing songs. And he'd be like, I just want to play songs. Yeah. You know what I mean, I want to yeah. serve the song with what I play. Totally. And so being an amazing technician is one thing, but then being able to like really make great music. So like that's a lesson I feel like I'm still learning. Yeah, well, I think what's hard about it is <clears throat> it's part of the nature of the craft and the way it's evolved. I mean, probably, you know, you look back decades pre-bebop, people probably weren't practicing the way we do now. Yeah. They weren't, you know, transcribing meticulously, you know, the number of solos we do and taking the same lessons in terms of language and finding something we want to take through 12 keys and, hmm. and just shed mat. And so we'll, <clears throat> I mean, they, they practice, of course, and it, but it was a different process, I think. It was probably a little more organic in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's interesting. So the, the problem is, I think sometimes we get in, into the moment and all that stuff that's external to the tune is like we just want to throw it out there. Shove it in. We, we've been working on right. it, you know. And um, really, the, the ideal way for that to play out is as as these things become part of our vocabulary, we allow every tune to sort of create a framework for how this stuff might show up in our, in our improvising. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like, then you're still playing the tune. Then you don't sound like you're playing the same stuff on every tune because, and you know, some tunes will be, they might really fit the kind of stuff you've been shedding and it's time to really open up and, and deliver. Other times it's like, not something else. And, and you need to use your imagination to to make it work within that framework and to, to present the music as, as uh, advantageously as possible. It's a little bit like, you know, one thing I deal with kind of a little more on the classical side is improvising cadenzas. Mm. So when I've done like Baroque or classical concertos, for a long time I've improvised the cadenzas and the same thing with newer pieces. And some of them, some of the concertos might have more of a jazz influence or might be just all around crazy anything goes like Jim Stevenson's concerto, you know, but yep. but each cadenza has to fit the piece. So I'll play in a way, for example, of the Zudi's concerto or Jim Stevenson's, and I'll play a cadenza that might be really nuts and kind of long and just sort of its own little mini composition. I'll probably do anything, <laughs> you know, probably write it in the limits of my technique. I'll be like tired and hurt at the end, you know, and then yep. you, you you go into the the final cadence after that, the, 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 the final coda rather, and then and it's done. But with something like the Haydn, you don't do that. <laughs> the Haydn, you know, it's it's got to it's got to fit the language of the concerto. Right. And so not only are you driving, um, you're using thematic materials from the concerto the same as you would in the other ones, but you're also you're kind of keeping things more compact so it fits the language of that classical period. So I would never play the same way. Um, you know, he wants to be a little bit virtuosic and showy. That's what Kenenzas are, but they need to kind of fit the vibe of, of the piece. Yeah. And it, I think it's the same exact principle as how we should approach performing uh, tunes in a jazz setting. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you, yeah. you know, it's like I've, I've read that like improvise, uh, cadenzas were 
originally improvised. Like that is something that was commonplace, yeah. and that like broke inflections were improvised. Like a lot of that stuff was like improvisation was more common in classical music than maybe it even is today in For that sure. era. Uh, do you always improvise your cadenzas when you're when you're playing pieces? Do you sometimes play written things? You write things out beforehand. You work some things out and then draw from that. Well, <clears throat> what's happened with some of them is there are certain things that I've improvised and I found that worked. It's a little bit like you hear about the great solo of some Duke's band. You know, and they would play a solo and it kind of evolved into a thing. They would play all the time. Yeah, it almost became part of the piece, like the, you know, Ray Nance's solo and A Train and stuff like right, that. Right, right. So some of the Cadenzas have evolved a little bit that way, but I never know exactly what's going to happen. And there have been a few times for records where it's like, I'm going to kind of compose this. Right. Um, so I'm not kind of hacking at it in a way that might totally be fine in a concert because it's that energy of live performance and perfections that even really what you're going for. It's all about energy and excitement. But on the record, you know, ultimately, you want to be able to put together something that's pretty precise, you know. I had an example recording a concerto um, with a brass band in England just a couple of weeks ago. And in that case, I was talking with the, the composer because he was like, initially, this, this cadenza at the end, man, I want it to be nuts and, and, and go berserk and stuff. And I was like, well, what do you want for the, for the record? Because I totally get that for live performance. He's like, you know, yeah, we want something actually, let's do something really compact. And so I just did two takes using just a couple licks from a couple of the movements and the whole thing was maybe 25 seconds long at the most and yeah. and that was it. So that fit, um, in that case it wasn't planned out but it was, I knew that I wanted the scope to be very small because I'd got that direct feedback from the composer. Yeah, and you said you met, you, you took things from inside the piece and used those as the cadenza. I mean like... I was just talking to my arranging class about, like, you know, when you create an intro, it's like use something from what you're going to write later on. Or if you're arranging a piece, like find a nugget and take it out and make it into a 16-bar intro. It's like, that seems like a really great way to, like, cr have connective tissue between the piece and what you're doing as a cadenza. Totally, yeah. Right. And try to create a sense of continuity across the performance. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned you had done a couple albums before you started touring with Joe. Uh, what was your trajectory like? You, you know, you were a military kid. Like, your dad was in the military, right? So you're traveling around a whole bunch as a kid. We were just talking about that last night. Uh, what was your trajectory like from being a kid, traveling around a whole bunch, to, like, getting into college, getting serious about trumpet? Were you super serious about trumpet before you got to college? I mean, it seems like trumpet yeah. came easily to you. Is that Was that fair well, to say? I, it's interesting because... Um, I seem to be way into music from the time I was a little kid, which is weird because I'm, I'm adopted. No one in my adoptive family was a musician, you know, so they were kind of wondering where it came from. Apparently when I was like three, my mom told me later, I was a big fan of Beethoven and Neil Diamond. Ah, all right. <laughs> would have been the right time for Neil. I would have been like 1972 or so, or 73 when I was when I was like three years old, you know, but it's, um, so, but I would sing along with stuff. I always wanted to hear Beethoven and, but later on, um, I got into singing. My voice wasn't like this when I was a little kid. I can sure. I actually had um, uh, did a lot of singing in choirs. And then I got a trumpet when I was 10, mostly because I'm asthmatic. And mm. the doctor told my parents, you know, I should play one instrument, and my friend played the trumpet, so that's what I got. You know, and at first, um, I didn't really care much about it. Um, but it was interesting. I 
I think it was right after my voice started, you know, around 12 or 13, my voice started getting a bit messed up and I wasn't really working as a, a, a choral singer anymore. Because at that point, you're still supposed to be singing like either the soprano or alto parts, you know, and I, sure. I couldn't do the second alto parts anymore, you know, and so Interesting. My, my career was, uh, was uh, came to an abrupt end. <laughs> and, and then I think it was, uh, the trumpet seemed like maybe that, that would be an outlet. So it was about a little before I turned 13, I started to get really into it. Mm. And yeah, yeah I, I don't know if I'd say it came easy. I mean, what happened was, was really interesting because when I moved to Northern Virginia, it was like the last move that my family did. I went to Robinson High School in Fairfax and they had a, a nice band program. And the trumpet teacher who just happened to come teaching there was Dennis Edelbrock, the guy who formed the founder of the National Trumpet Competition. Oh, okay, wow. And Denny, I credit him with everything because I was, I was pretty lame when I came to him and I played with a lot of muscle and I hadn't had any real instruction before that, but um, I was playing, I mean, it was like four hours a day or something, you know. When you were 13, 14. Wow. And most Yeah, I mean, that takes a certain kind of kid to be... Yeah, I, I kind of went nuts for the trumpet pretty early, but I was mostly doing damage. I didn't know how to practice. Sure. And, you yeah. know, I'd just kill my chops. And so he was a guy who got me to kind of release the, the tension physically and start to develop flexibility. And once he did that, then everything seemed to come technically pretty quickly. I mean, I was able to play pretty hard rep um, in, in high school. Tomasi and Brandenburg and Honegger wow. and Trotter, those things were um, all kind of accessible there. But um, but I I didn't really do much on the jazz side at that point, you know, and I... Um, Partially because it didn't feel like it was at the time it wasn't necessarily what classical trumpet players did. You know, yeah. winter was just on the scene, and and I think um, a lot of people saw Alan Mazzuti as you know, well, no one else can do that. You know, and so there were just a few people like him and Vince who were, who were doing it and, and getting some notoriety. And but Winton, I think, changed it for things for a lot of people. Right? You know, what I mean, he, he yeah. came out doing it with such success, and so by the time I got to college. I was kind of out on my own. I went to Northwestern to study trumpet, but it was a bit of a weird time in in the studio um, there. And uh, I went to study with Vince Chickwitz, who, who was great. I mean, his reputation as a great man, a great pedagogue and trumpet player, all that was very well deserved. Yep. I just felt like I might have shown up at the kind of the wrong point in his career. He was just kind of tired. He was doing team teaching with some other folks I didn't really like working with. Hmm. So I got out. And um, like you dropped out, yeah, yeah. I dropped out of the music school and um, ended up getting uh, eventually I got a degree in anthropology from from Northwestern. But wow. on the trumpet side, I meant I, I didn't <clears throat> I didn't really have any instruction formally after the age of nineteen. Hmm. So um, and then I started going to jam sessions, and I was terrible man. But I had all this <laughs> technical facility, so it was like. It was terrible and like offensive, like high, loud, no sense of feel, no sense of time, wrong notes, wrong key, and I'm surprised no one took me out of the alley and beat me up, man, because it, it must have been really offensive to hear. You Did know? anybody call you out? Did anybody? Oh yeah, yeah. People were like, "Man, you gotta, you gotta chill," you know. And and, and I and I listened to them. And I I was. So I feel like those are valuable, actually, situations where like, yeah, you kind of get somebody goes like, "Hey, man, you get some." 
shit you gotta get together. Right, and a lot of it was just I wasn't getting the right lessons from the recordings. You know, the real books were just coming out, and I yeah, I was a classical player, so I had learned so much out of books that I I didn't realize. I shouldn't be that way really even on the classical side, right? But that's been the tradition. Yep. And so I was, I'd come in and call a tune and people were like, man, do you, you want the intro on that tune? I look at it blankly like, oh, you can let it out of the real book. Get off the stage kind of vibe, you know? And yeah, yeah. So, but then I would go check out that tune and, and find the recordings. And so it was basically, I put together the knowledge through a lot of bad performances at jam sessions and, and sitting in on the gigs and I started to get better, you know. And yeah. Brad Good was a real big help to me too. He hmm. as even I started getting like some little cocktail kind of gigs sometimes or background gigs and I would hire Brad to play bass. Uh -huh. Because he was a really good bass player and he would offer me coaching and stuff and, and so he was not in a formal sense but de facto kind of teacher and mentor for me, you know. So that's how it all started coming together, you know. Cool. Um, and then it took a bit of a turn because when I was 22, I kind of put down classical music in any serious sense. I was like, I was still going like, you know, your jazz playing is not good and it's time to make a real commitment. So uh, I slowed everything down. Um, I, I wouldn't let myself play anything faster than quarter notes at first, which was really tough. Yeah. And, and I started getting more command of the language and the harmony as it got you know, as I was able to kind of maintain the integrity of what I was doing, I allowed myself to play more complicated things. And I was just immersed in recording to that point, you know. Um, and are you going to school again at all during this time? Or, like, did you ever go back to school? I, I went back to school years later. So at that point, no, I was just um, freelancing in Chicago. Yeah. The next part of my education, I guess is to say, would be when Rhythm and Brass called, you know, with the Whiff Rudd. It's a group that I started touring with in 95. Okay. And, uh, through that, that was another incredible kind of luck story to get that gig. But my name had been passed on them for, um, from a couple people as someone who was a classical player who played jazz. But when they called, I was like, man, am I even a classical player anymore? So I'm like, yeah, trying to get my chops together. Because at first I was like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this. But when I heard the recordings and some of the stuff reminded me of like Empire Brass, I was like, oh man, this would be so cool to play with these guys. So I, I got lessons from people like Neil, Neil Bernstein and Kevin Hartman and the folks who were playing the orchestras in Chicago and yeah. try to bring my chops back together. The repertoire I used to play, I, I couldn't really play the same anymore, but I was trying to get like Tomasi and Brandenburg these things together. But, uh, um, but touring with them was kind of the next phase of learning for me, you know, and, and it's the first time I started playing classical and jazz in the same setting. Okay. Um, and I moved to New York in 97 and, you know, that stuff went down with Joe. But uh, I went, I ended up going back to school in 98 at the age of 29. Some of that was like, like we mentioned, I ended up through rather strange circumstances going to Baton Rouge. Okay, right, right, right. And LSU was able to offer me a jazz assistantship so I can get paid to go to school while studying classical trumpet. So I did, uh, I did a master's and actually a doctorate. I did those, other than the final project, man, I did both degrees in two and a half years total. Wow. Not recommended. Yeah, that's a, uh, that seems like a haul. Worst years of my life in many ways, you know, in terms of health and no sleep and stuff. But, yeah. but I was, for a variety of reasons, I was trying to rush. And in some ways it was fortunate that I did because by the time the VCU gig came up, I was ABD 
and uh, that was enough for them to you know consider to bring you on that for that position. Yeah, you know it's interesting. You talked about uh, you know from the classical side, it's really common to just like work off of sheet music, work out of books, and and that the listening side isn't as emphasized. Um, I've I've got a story about that with with John Daniel actually because I came into Lawrence as a transfer student and really just wanted to study jazz. Like I came there to do a jazz studies major, but I had to practice these orchestral etudes as my audition. So like my first audition, I practiced all these orchestral etudes and like I was playing them great. I was at the time I had been practicing many many hours. You know, it's like um, and what funny you know maybe what you experienced in high school is what I experienced in college where John Daniel was like. You're just hurting your face. You're practicing way too much. Like you have to, you have to change what you're doing. We have to, we have to get your flexibility going. But you know, before that, it's like I auditioned for him, and he's like, "Okay, uh, have you ever heard any of these excerpts in context?" You know, and that was like a huge light bulb moment for me because at the time, like I knew I gotta be, I gotta, I gotta get with the tapes. I gotta be listening to jazz. I gotta be transcribing stuff, playing stuff off recordings. Like I knew that about right. jazz. But, like, for some reason, it didn't connect with learning the orchestral etudes. And then it was like, oh, I, ha- I should listen to this shit, too, so yeah. I can have it, it together it, it stylistically probably, and understand the context and all that. It was probably more of an abstraction <clears throat> on that side for you. You had that, you know, you're used to digging into the actual sounds on the jazz side. Yeah. And this was like, well, this is something i got to play for the audition. Yeah. And so that's interesting, yeah, because it's, it's true, and there's, um, you know... I think most people now who are on track to like take an orchestral audition, they know, you know, get the scores, consult a bunch of recordings, get kind of into that sound space and um, in, in terms of preparation, but it's still, it's not the same as what we tend to do in jazz. I try to imagine like when I was 14, if Denny had been like, hey man, here's Morris Andre's record of the Haydn, learn it. Yeah. You know, so that would have been really hard for me, but man, imagine how I would have known that piece right. after going through that process. And instead, I learned it the way most people do. I, w- I would have recordings, but I had sheet music, and that was like kind of the anchor for me instead of the sound. Well, it's interesting because like the expectation is that it's memorized too. I mean, at the highest level, it's like you were just talking about playing for one some gig that you applied for where you had the whole the whole you know recital memorized it's like that's that's the bar right so if that's the bar why don't we so do you do that with your students you go like learn this from a recording or um i find that it's it's often impractical there's some folks that could do that i think of someone like uh, you ever run into marcus grant no so marcus is at um i think he's on his way to the national trumpet competition i was on the board of the ntc cool fantastic head and and um remarkable musician he was one of these guys when he was an undergrad, he would just automatically memorize everything he played for studio recitals. Yeah. He'd just be like, oh, this is memorized. And he never dropped a beat in performance. He never got lost. He's got perfect pitch and really good processing and structure. Yeah. So for someone like Marcus, I think I could have been like, here, man, check out this piece. And in some cases, it depends on the complexity of the piece, too, right? It's, it's a little bit like, you know, if you're dealing with jazz on the, uh, on the jazz side, if you're dealing with pre-bebop music, you know, people didn't necessarily need to understand harmony to play the repertoire at that time, but once you're dealing with, you know, Wayne Shorter and Train and uh, Freddie Hubbard and all the, all the other folks who were writing what they did in the 60s, it's like, you can't really manage this repertoire without understanding harmony and having some sense of how the, the, the nuts and bolts of music. 
And there are classical right. pieces like that too, I think, where it's like, you can only go so far, you know, in terms of um, really understanding the structure of some of these contemporary pieces without probably notation. But for a lot of pieces, I think it would work, you know? It really would work for like, Neruda and Haydn and Hummel and right. some of these more traditional pieces where you could really get your ear engaged and then I think of the development of the sound and nuance and inflection I think it'd, it'd be right. amazing and the performances are pretty different player to player too so then you get into like this is how so and so plays it this is how so and so plays it yeah. I've checked them both out I've learned learned how they play it from recording you know yeah, totally. but that's uh, I started doing that a little bit more in my master's program when I was learning a lot of classical rep, I was like going to recordings and learning a lot of it by ear. Because um, I was like, man, this is how I do it with jazz. Why don't I just, you know, <laughs> it's interesting. And that's the thing, too, is like for you as a jazz player, you would have developed, developed that skill. Yeah. A lot of folks who are not coming from that background on the classical side, it's it's so foreign for them to think of doing that, that it's almost, um, <clears throat> it's there's too much of a learning curve initially. Right. And so even though it might be the best approach in the long run, I think it just doesn't happen often because it's, it's too yeah. difficult at first. So then my mind goes to, like, why don't we teach everything by ear to fifth graders when they get their instruments when they're 10 years old? You know, do why that. don't we spend six months doing that? Well, it's funny, man, because they'll do that in, like, places in, like in Spain. With yeah. Their bands, you know, it's like you see the difference. I remember when uh, I went over there for the first time working with uh, Jose Schaffer. It was like, I don't know if you're running him, he's in uh, Alicante area. He lives in this little village called Le Oyeria. It's not easy for me to say. Yeah. Incredible trumpet player. Great, very successful teacher. And so we're doing this class with all these kids sitting around. And if I was like, play this, I was like, oh, I don't know if I need music. They would just play it. These kids would just hear what I was doing and process it. But when Jose came to my school, yeah, yeah. he was trying to do that. And um, he didn't have a very good translator either because my Spanish is pretty weak and his ang his English wasn't very good at the time and he was yeah. like what's wrong with these kids why can't they yep. I was like man these kids <laughs> we don't <laughs> learn from you the way you guys do but but you see the benefit and sure enough the level of trumpet playing in Spain is, is astonishing I mean, yeah guys who are playing the big orchestras like pff, amazing players wow yeah. I don't know if I really even knew that about Spain you know uh, that's that'd be an interesting case study. I've been doing. I have a band here that learns everything by ear. So one of the bands that you'll hear yeah. the night that you play Saturday night with my students, uh, the first band that opens is a workshop brass band, which is a New Orleans band, and they've learned 40, 50 tunes by ear over the last four years. Awesome. No sheet music ever. You know, it started with me playing every individual part to them, and then it began to be like, you guys are listening to the recordings. What do you want to play? They, they were listening to Rebirth albums. They're listening to bands down in New Orleans. Yeah. Like, I want to play this tune, I want to play this tune. So then they start learning from recordings, you know. That's awesome. And it's created this really interesting, I mean, like, culture that has, I think, bled to all my different ensembles at the school. Right. Um, and so I started thinking, like, man, why don't more people... You know, Fred Sturm did this with, like, when, when I got to Lawrence, Fred was like, we're going to learn stablemates by ear. It was the first thing we did, my first day in, in the Lawrence University Jazz Ensemble. Wow. And he taught everybody their parts by ear. And I remember being freaked out, like, I'm not going to remember what he sang to me you know like, I'm not gonna remember I'm not gonna I figured it out but I'm not gonna remember and it's like over time that anxiety of not of worrying that you're gonna forget things it's, it's interesting man like the more we memorize the more we can memorize you know what I mean you think yeah. it'd be the opposite it's like right. we're shoving so much stuff in our heads like we're gonna forget we're gonna mix things up but it's really the opposite it's like the more you memorize the yeah. more you can memorize it's like your brain starts to memorize patterns like totally. recognize things you know exactly it's like the process of memorizing 
facilitates more easy memorization. It, yeah. It's just like the, the, the neural structures we create just allow for that to become a, a more and more organic, natural process. Because it's weird because it's, it's not really intuitive for us, right? We think, well, you know, how's it going to work? But, but it's like, you know, writing, whether it's music or the written word or whatever, has been obviously an incredibly valuable invention for us, but through most of human history, that was not a thing. You know, right. everything's been an oral tradition, so we're wired for that to work. I think we just don't always trust it as much as we, as we should. Yeah, and even like, you know, considering writing, you know, and how we learn language, and considering that music is a language, it's like we learn language. Yeah, I've got two small kids. Like we learn language with call and response. Like that's how we learn totally. to speak. You know, yeah. we don't put a book in front of them and go read. Right. You know, Augie's seven now. He's just now reading his own books. You know. Right. It's like we don't expect them to read right away. We do call and response for years, totally. and then they master the language. That they, they learn to say words. They learn to say sentences. And then slowly over time, they learn to read, they learn to write, they learn to maybe write poetry, maybe make art, write stories, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, if we, if we apply that same timeline to music, then the music education system should look completely different than it looks now. Right, yeah. You know? And I think that metaphor, or, or analogy really, of, <clears throat> uh, of spoken language to music, in particular to jazz, is so powerful. There's so many parallels that we can use to kind of illustrate both how we learn and how it works, how yeah. it works in, in the process of improvising, you know. So that's, yeah, it's, you know, it's a lot of powerful lessons there. Yeah. So here's a question. Yeah. You mentioned last night when we were talking that you played the uh, Honegger Entrada for one of your recitals, uh, and you worked it up and memorized it as a part of, like, a bigger recital where you memorized everything. And you just mentioned here that you play the intrado when you were in high school. So how long does it take you to rework a tune like that, that you've played before, that maybe you've internalized before? Like, how, how long does it take you to work it back up? Yeah, and it depends on the particular challenges, you know. So the, so the Honegger's case, the, the big thing, of course, initially is just getting through that first page for people, you know, is the, there's the accuracy with intervals and the stamina and and you know, crossing the two and a half octaves down the low G after last year. Those, those kinds of things yep. are challenging. And then there's, of course, lining up in the fast section, your tempo between the triple tongue stuff and the, the eighth notes. So there are those kind of details to work out. Um, and on the other hand, there might be a, a different kind of piece that has totally different challenges, you know. So there's some pieces like even like Jim Stevenson's second trumpet concerto, the Extreme. I mean, he loves nicknames, of course, Jim. And it's a, it's an amazing piece. It's still the hardest thing I've ever played in my life. Though. So every time I've, I'm going to pull it out, if it's been a couple or a few months, I treat it like I'm learning it for the first time. Hmm. It's just that when it comes to speeding up the licks and getting through the stuff, that's a bit of an accelerated process, you know. So part of it is trying to understand for each individual piece, what do I need to deal with? When it came to uh, the Han, the Han again, I, you know, I've played it other times since high school, but in that case, I hadn't played it in a few years, and I hadn't been playing as much sea trumpet, but I wanted to showcase my sea trumpet playing, so a lot of it was just kind of living with the sea, yeah. finding the sound and the resonance and reminding myself of all the pitch tendencies, and and then, um, you know, going through, I, I've been lucky in that the, that's, that stamina thing has not been much of an issue for me, like... Um, I could always kind of get through that stuff, but it didn't always sound the way I wanted it to, you know. Yeah. If I got a little high scene, it sounded strained, 
or if I'm descending and some at some point the sound will lose its center, then those are things I'd want to address, you know. And and so yeah, it really it really depends, you know, what the goals are specifically and what the challenges of the piece are. In that case, I had probably just a couple months, I think, to have to to dig it up again. And, um, and so I was trying to be very organized and smart in my process to really zone in on what was difficult. Um, and, and that helped me be more efficient as I was putting it back together. Yeah, cool. Um, I got a question for you about like how a soloist, so you're known as a virtuoso soloist. You play both jazz and you play classical music. You tour all over the world every year and you play like if I had a nickel for every time you posted a plane selfie where you're on your way to some exotic country, um, you know, it's like you're always doing these big, uh, you know, premieres of new orchestral works, playing with orchestras, playing jazz festivals, not unlike what you're doing here at Michigan Tech doing our jazz festival this weekend. Um, I feel like this is somewhat of an untapped market for young soloists, uh, for young improvisers, for young, uh, for young performers who are, who are fantastic players, but just like haven't been connected in this scene. And, you know, this, this thing has developed for me too, over the last maybe like six or seven years, I started doing jazz festivals where I was like adjudicating first. And then people would go like, oh, I like how that person adjudicated. I'm going to have them come in and be my guest artist. And then I would spend three days at a school. I'd get a bigger chunk of money. And, you know, they play my tunes. Like, having composed a bunch of big band music helps, of course, uh, because they, they can buy my charts. They can practice my music. The students can be listening to my music beforehand. Um, but, man, it's like this has been an extremely lucrative part of my career, especially between the months of January and May. So, like, how does a soloist develop this side of the music industry if they are if this is something that they're interested in yeah well so much of it is it's it's all about contact with people isn't it mm. it's like when you you mentioned you, you show up somewhere and, and and you do a good job and then people remember you know and and being willing to stay in touch with people you know there have been times where in fact i just had this experience this morning where i, I reach out to someone to see about playing their jazz festival at their school. And I'm looking at who they have this year, and I was like, that's a bit intimidating. I'm not sure who it was, but I was like, these are, these are good players, man, and they're high-profile players, and, and it may be that, um, I, I don't know if he's going to think, you know, I'm in the league or whatever, but yeah. I sent a very polite note, because you never know. Um, I, I did ISU, man, and it was like Jeffrey Keezer, Christian McBride, they named all these players, and I was like, and me, okay, here we go. <laughs> you know, okay, well, but that's that's how it works, you know. And yeah. so you, you know, and I'm sure you fit right in with those cats. You know what I mean? It and cool. It's like yeah. it's it, it's um and, and again, part of that is you know trusting. You got to trust yourself. You also got to you know be really hardcore about trying to <clears throat> develop your own skills. Like yeah. I would never want to show up for something and be like, oh man, I wasn't ready to hang. You know, right? <clears throat> and so, but opportunities show like the thing with. With Joe, man, when I got the call, I wasn't expecting it. I was just moving to New York, and uh, it kind of came <clears throat> out of the blue. But, you know, what I did is I, I mean, I already had basically all of Joe's records, but any that I didn't, I bought them. I bought his book and transcripts. I just kind of totally immersed myself in, in Joe's stuff. Like right. when I got the Rhythm of Grass job, it was the same kind of thing of trying to get <clears throat> into that repertoire that was going to fit in. Not just saying, oh, I can do this. It was like, man, I'm going to make sure... I can do this. And there are going to be times when you don't have to do that. And other times it's like, this is going to be, you know, this is going to put me at the edge of what I can do. 
and I'm going to really deliver it, you know. But I think it all starts with that. It's all about, um, you know, I'm here because of our personal contact, right? We met right. in 2009 when you were at the University of Minnesota, and we had a great experience together, and that was like the start of a friendship. Yeah. And um, we've collaborated other times over the years, you know. So, um, it, so it, it really comes down to that, I think. And there's going to be some people, sometimes you might be more concerned, it's like, well, this person is very well known in the industry and this segment of the industry, they're at four, I want them. And other people aren't gonna care about that. And you might fit into that category, you might not, you know, and right. and so it, it depends um, on and to some degree the sort of frame of mind of the person who's who's booking the stuff. But a lot of people just they just want good musicians to come in, you know, they want people who are gonna give something good to the students as well. Because there are a lot of players who play great, but they don't necessarily connect with students. Yeah, I was going to ask about you know? teaching. Like, how, how important is that aspect? You know, it's like I, I do see myself as a dynamic teacher, like an, like a you yeah. know a high energy. Like when I come in for three days, it's like it's easy also to to bring the heat for three days. It's like having this. This is my first like full time gig. You know, like having a full time gig, the pacing is much different. Yeah. So it's like you can't be like that. I can't be like I am when I go to ISU for three days. Oh, yeah, and it's a different thing, too, because, you know, when you're working with your own kids, you know, you're, you're dealing with longer-term goals. And, you know, and, and in my case, too, working with, you know, trumpet majors and stuff where it's like they got to put recitals together. And, right. you know, it's a different relationship evolves where it's like I got to put the, you know, the, you know, kind of let them have it if they're not doing the work and for their, for their, for their own sake. You know, right. it's like being... You know, and so sometimes it gets intense, and but there's, you know, there's love there, but it's like it's it's got to be tough sometimes. It's in a lot of ways as a, as a guest artist, it's a different thing, isn't it? You come in and yep. work with someone else's students, <clears throat> and so really, you what you want is clear goals about how they're going to remember this experience. And for me, it's like if if people walk out of my master class going, man, I want to go practice. Then I feel like I've done my job, right? You know? Especially if they feel like, well, I learned something and I want to go practice, you know. But you know, anyone, you know, if, if you ever come into a place and you feel like you're leaving some bad feelings there, I think that would be a terrible thing to do. That's not what the job is, you know. Right. And it gets tough because we're so hardcore about what we do. We work so hard for our craft, and so sometimes if you're working with a kid who seems like maybe they're not as serious or or they don't care. You know, we can have our own negative reaction on that, but I think that stuff just needs to be thrown out. It should have no part of what we're doing. You know, mm -hmm. and so that's typically how I think of it. It's like I want to come in and I want to help kind of raise the energy levels through my own enthusiasm. You know, where I want, but and, and we also got to remember too that you know we spend all this time in a practice room by ourselves, but music is about people, isn't it? Yeah, it's ultimately about it's about people. When you when you come when I come on stage. Um, I feel like I, I've got a mission here. It's a very simple mission, but it's very important. I just need to share this music with people. Then I'm not trying to impress anyone. It's not about me trying to be a badass. It's not about um, you know anything else except something that's very simple. But if anything gets in the way, if I'm too caught up in myself, or there are other obstacles, then then the mission can fail. But I, and it helps me because, you know. We're all our own worst critics, right? That's something we face, and it's very easy to come off stage and be like, "I didn't play the way I, the way I wanted to play." Yep, I'm yep. kind of angry about it. I used to be like that all the time because I never really feel like I, I play well. It, mm. it maybe one in a hundred concerts, not even that. It never really happens. So I'm like, you know what? I really play great. 
This doesn't happen. So you can let that destroy you right. if that's really the goal. But I mean, it's funny, Thomas Gons did a post recently uh, about what was the brass, but he was yeah, like, yeah. I figured out, he's like, you know, I figured out what the equation is. I'm trying to figure out to find what success is. He's like, because I, and if it's this, you fail, you fail, you fail, you keep failing until you realize you're the only one who thinks you're failing. Oh, man. And then you found it. I was like, bang, you know. And Thomas, you know, he's a super smart guy as well as an incredible position. So, and that's kind of what we're going for. That That's what I've accepted is like where if people come out of the room after I've played and they've, they enjoyed it. They, they're like, that lifted me up, man. I, you know, my day was improved by that. I, I experienced something beautiful or something, you know, that lifted me up. Then, yep. then I feel like the job was done. And that's much less scary than like, you know, I got to not miss a note or I got whatever kind of artificial things come in their head when they're on stage. Right, you know? right. So I try to I try to teach from that standpoint too, you know, where it's um, ultimately we're just trying to, to lift people up. And it's relatively easy to do it in this setting when we come in as guest artists, you know. Totally. The grind is when we're at home. <laughs> yep. You know, when you, we're going through the struggle with the kids over the course of years and depending what their goals are, it can be intense and, and, and scary and intimidating at times but as long as, as long as we're there with them with the right kind of support and the right kind of discipline then um, we're you know because I feel like if we don't do that if we don't bring the right kind of discipline and, and demands on them if they're trying to go out to be professional musicians and we're doing them a disservice yeah know, yeah you know one of my um, one of my colleagues is a composer her desk right across the hall here. I'll introduce you. She's an amazing composer. And we talk a lot about balancing artistic work, like work as artists, and academia, and how that can be difficult. You seem like somebody who's done a really good job of balancing those things. You mentioned you're, you're on the road, you're playing all the time, you're touring. Um, how has it been balancing these two things academia and being a yeah high high level player well it's been interesting it right off the bat it was a little weird for me because I didn't really come from an academic background I've had some colleagues who you know they go through school bachelor's master's and doctorate and, and straight through and then they then they go on to a teaching job right know? for me I didn't even get a bachelor's in, in music you know and then I was out playing and when I Went to graduate school, it was all very compressed. You know, I did the two degrees basically in two and a half years, um, and that was still uh, touring about a third of the time. So wow. it was it was terrible. Not recommend. <laughs> you know, then I went back there to the final project for the doctorate in 2006. But so when I showed up, lots of times I was like, man, I don't, I don't really know what these cats are talking about. Sometimes, it, <laughs> sometimes it's still that way. But yeah. but but that's like a normal part of I think human interaction in any setting. You know, where people have different priorities and, and one a chairman was really good at pointing out to me he's like look lots of times you're going to have different priorities and some of your colleagues but ultimately you you all share very similar values in terms of what you're going for mm. and that's different than the priorities you might be you know i might be more performance oriented than someone else but we're still all about you know we want we value the quality of the music we value the quality of the work the kids are doing right you know so some of it has been a, a, a an, an issue of frame of mind and, and making sense of the space I'm working in but but mostly what's helped me is trying to you know to try to be very organized in, in how I, I manage my life and also be very accessible to the to the students and so those two things have made it possible for me to 
to be busy as a performer and still, you know, get the work done as in the way I think it, you know, needs to be um, in an academic setting. Because uh, the kids reach out any time they need something. There's no, there's no barrier. I, I treat them right off the bat like they're just like younger colleagues. Mm. And me, I've, I, one thing is I've never really liked titles. No one calls me doctor. Everyone just calls me Rex. And then yep. there's no awkward transition once they graduate. I've seen this all the time with people trying to figure out what they call the former professors. They just call me the same thing, you yeah, know. And yeah. then when we meet on gigs, it's it feels very natural or normal for playing gigs together in town. And so that's that's I think that vibe has helped me because when they need something, even if I'm out of town, they reach out and and I can connect with them. Um, and also, you know, as, as you know, you probably has more more to juggle than I do because you've, you're dealing with ensembles and running a whole area, you mm -hmm. know. And, and for me, um, I've been my my job's maybe been a little more simple because it's almost entirely private lessons, right. you know. And then we got a weekly studio class that I team teach with uh, Taylor Barnett, and you probably know Taylor, yeah, a great yeah. player and teacher. And uh, sometimes some chamber brass coaching, you know, and and just anytime I can play on. Campus is part of you know one of the concerts. I try to be involved that way, but it, but it's it's relatively simple in terms of what I've had to do over the years. And, yeah. But yeah, I'm not naturally a terribly organized person, so mm -hmm. I've had to develop processes, you know, in terms of like the calendar and the notebook to make sure I'm looking ahead. What's coming up? You know, recitals, uh, juries. You know, this kid has a, this audition. They need to be, make a recording for. Make sure they're getting that support. All that right. kind of stuff. And, right. Um, over time, you, you just learn to to manage it. You know. Yeah, cool. So, what do you have coming up, man? Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna like you know the show notes. We're gonna link your your stuff in the show notes, your website, uh, whatever else you want us to link. Do you have any upcoming cool. projects? Yeah, let's see. After this, uh, I'm actually headed straight to South Carolina on Sunday. I'm going to University of South Carolina to do a class for um, jazz students and uh, brass studios. Two yeah. two classes. And it's funny how that originated because I was down there playing with the Palmetto Winds during uh, Dana Wilson's new uh, jazz trumpet concerto a few months ago. Went hung out afterwards and met uh, the guy who's kind of the interim trumpet teacher right now, Dave Allison. And Dave is also a sommelier. Oh, cool. So I'm, I'm way into wines. You're a wine I, guy, yeah. yeah. I've got my level two certification for the Wine Spirit Education Trust, which wow, means cool. I know nothing compared to Dave. <laughs> sommelier. But um, we had an office, like, I saw this event they have Monday. like, Oh man, I'd love to come there. It's like, why don't we set up some clinics for you? So I'll there you be, go, man. I'll be working in the day and then and then going to um, uh, to to learn about wines in the evening. You know, after that, um, I'm home for a bit. I need to go play a concert in Kentucky. Uh, going back to where I just was because uh, weather had actually canceled the concert. They had a bunch of campuses shut down. Um, and then later in April, I'm uh, playing another technical university jazz festival, Georgia Tech. Oh, cool. Um, playing a lot of the same repertoire, uh, a little more of my rep um, there. And then I'm going to the national, it's a North American Brass Band Association, their national competition, like just a couple of days after that, to judge the cornet competition. Oh, cool. And to uh, do a, a master class there. And so that'll be fun. And then I've got. A bit of time at home, I think. Oh no, I'm, I'm doing a, a Grand Rapids, uh, Minnesota. Actually, Dale Gunderson's school. I'm playing his jazz oh, yeah. festival. Nice. You know, you know, Gundy, yeah. Yeah, great guy. Yeah. And, and after that, I'm going to Japan uh, to to do a couple of uh, 
trumpet concertos with uh, Tokyo Winds Symphony Orchestra. Wow, that's the name. Nice. It's an interesting uh, acronym for, for that name. But um, and that, then I get a little bit of a, of a break until July, until the tour and stuff. So cool, man. It sounds like a fun schedule. Yeah, it's Coming fun. I've been tired, but you know, just try to get rest and stay healthy and stuff. So. There you go. All right, man. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. I appreciate you. Yeah, likewise, man. Thank you. I'm going to have you blow my students' minds now in a second. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Rex Richardson. Hey, if you dig the show, tell a friend or post about it on social media. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gig Boss. You can hit the plus sign on Spotify or follow us on Apple Podcasts. If you follow us wherever you listen... That helps us grow, and that means that you won't miss any great episodes. I want to take a second to tell you about the Gig Boss app. The Gig Boss app is an organizational tool for freelance musicians and band leaders. All right, so if that describes you, it's free on iOS and Android. It was developed by me and my wife and some friends, and it's based on my full-time career as a musician. All the various struggles that I had dealing with scheduling, dealing with finances, dealing with taxes, that's what we built this thing for to make your life easier as a gigging musician okay people have been tracking their private lessons there people have been tracking their gigs it's great it's useful it's free check it out ios and android appreciate you listening peace